Book Three, Chapter Eight of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Houghton Tower. Chapter Eight. How King James hunted the hart and the wild boar in Houghton Park. Galloping on fast and furiously, Richard tracked a narrow path of greensward lying between the tall trees composing the right line of the avenue and the adjoining wood. Within it grew many fine old thorns, diverting him now and then from his course, but he still held on till he came within a short distance of the chase, when his attention was caught by a very singular figure. It was an old man, clad in a robe of coarse brown serge, with a cowl drawn partly over his head, a rope girdle like that used by a cordelia, sandal shoon, and a venerable white beard descending to his waist. The features of the hermit, for such he seemed, were majestic and benevolent. Seated on a bank overgrown with wild thyme, beneath the shade of a broad-armed elm, he appeared so intently engaged in the perusal of a large open volume laid on his knee that he did not notice Richard's approach. Deeply interested, however, by his appearance, the young man determined to address him, and reining in his horse, said respectfully, "'Save you, father?' "'Pass on, my son,' replied the old man, without raising his eyes, "'and hinder not my studies.' But Richard would not be thus dismissed." "'Perchance you are not aware, father,' he said, "'that the king is about to hunt within the park this morning. "'The royal cavalcade has already left Houghton Tower, "'and it will be here ere many minutes.' "'The king and his retinue will pass along the broad avenue, "'as you should have done, and not through this retired road,' replied the hermit. "'They will not disturb me.' "'I would fain know the subject of your studies, father,' inquired Richard. "'You are inquisitive, young man,' returned the hermit, looking up and fixing a pair of keen grey eyes upon him. "'But I will satisfy your curiosity, if by so doing I shall rid me of your presence. I am reading the Book of Fate.' Richard uttered an exclamation of astonishment. "'And in it your destiny is written,' pursued the old man, "'and a sad one it is.' "'Consumed by a strange and incurable disease, which may at any moment prove fatal, you are scarcely likely to survive the next three days, in which case she you love better than existence will perish miserably, being adjudged to have destroyed you by witchcraft. "'It must indeed be the book of fate that tells you this,' cried Richard, springing from his horse and approaching close to the old man. "'May I cast eyes upon it?' "'No, my son,' replied the old man, closing the volume. "'You would not comprehend the mystic characters, "'but no eye except my own must look upon them. "'What is written will be fulfilled. "'Again I bid you pass on. "'I must speedily return to my hermit cell in the forest.' "'May I attend you thither, father?' asked Richard. "'To what purpose?' rejoined the old man. "'You have not many hours of life. "'Go, then, and pass them in the fierce excitement of the chase. 
pull down the lordly stag, slaughter the savage boar, and as you see the poor denizens of the forest perish, think that your own end is not far off. Hark! do you hear that boding cry? It is the croak of a raven newly alighted in the tree above us, replied Richard. The sagacious bird will ever attend the huntsman in the chase, in the hope of obtaining a morsel when they break up deer. Uh, such is the custom of the bird, I wot well, said the old man, but it is not in joyous expectation of the raven's bone that he croaks now, but because his fell instinct informs him that the living dead is beneath him. And as if in answer to the remark, the raven croaked exultingly, and rising from the tree, wheeled in a circle above them. "'Is there no way of averting my terrible destiny, father?' cried Richard despairingly. "'Aye, if you choose to adopt it,' replied the old man. "'When I said your ailment was incurable, I meant by ordinary remedies. But it will yield to such as I alone can employ.' the malignant and fatal influence under which you labour may be removed, and then your instant restoration to health and vigour will follow. But how, father, how? cried Richard eagerly. You have simply to sign your name in this book, rejoined the hermit, and what you desire shall be done. Here is a pen, he added, taking one from his girdle. But the ink— cried Richard. "'Perick your arm with your dagger, and dip the pen in the blood,' replied the old man. "'That will suffice.' "'And what follows if I sign?' demanded Richard, staring at him. "'Your instant cure. I will give you to drink of a wondrous elixir.' "'But to what do I bind myself?' asked Richard. "'To serve me.' replied the hermit, smiling. "'But it is a light service, and only involves your appearance in this wood once a year. Are you agreed?' "'I know not,' replied the young man distractedly. "'You must make up your mind speedily,' said the hermit, "'for I hear the approach of the royal cavalcade.' And as he spoke, the mellow notes of a bugle, followed by the baying of hounds, the jingling of bridles, and the trampling of a large troop of horse, were heard at a short distance down the avenue. "'Tell me who you are,' cried Richard. "'I am the hermit of the wood,' replied the old man. "'Some people call me Hobdhurst, and some by other names. But you will have no difficulty in finding me out. Look yonder.' he added, pointing through the trees, and glancing in the direction indicated, Richard beheld a small party on horseback, advancing across the plain, consisting of his father, his sister, and Alison, with their attendants. "'Tis she! tis she!' he cried. "'Can you hesitate when it is to save her?' demanded the old man. "'Heaven help me, or I am lost!' fervently ejaculated Richard gazing on high, while making the appeal. When he looked down again, the old man was gone, and he saw only a large black snake gliding off among the bushes. Muttering a few words of thankfulness for his deliverance, he sprang upon his horse. Oh, "'It may be the arch-tempter is right,' he cried. 
and that but a few hours of life remain to me. But if so, they shall be employed in endeavours to vindicate Alison, and defeat the snares by which she is beset. With this resolve he struck spurs into his horse, and set off in the direction of the little troop. Before, however, he could move up to them, their progress was arrested by a pursuivant, who, riding in advance of the royal cavalcade, motioned them to stay till it had passed, and the same person, also perceiving Richard's purpose, called to him authoritatively to keep back. The young man might have disregarded the injunction, but at the same moment the king himself appeared at the head of the avenue, and remarking Richard, who was not more than fifty yards off on the right, instantly recognised him, and shouted out, "'Come hither, young man, come hither!' Thus baffled in his design, Richard was forced to comply, and, uncovering his head, rode slowly towards the monarch. As he approached, James fixed on him a glance of the sharpest scrutiny. "'Odds life, you have been gang in a fine gate, young sir,' he cried. "'You maun be demented to rain down a hill in that fashion, and as if your craig were of near mount.' "'It's weel you've come off scathless. "'Are you tired of life? "'Or was it the muckle deal himself that drove you on? "'Canna you find an excuse, man? "'Dead then I'll gie on. "'The Lord's tent will draw nails out of our door, "'and there'll be lasses within strang as Lord stains "'that drag men to their perdition. "'Stands the magnet yonder, eh?' he added, "'glancing towards the little group before him. "'Good faith, the last man be a potent witch to exercise such influence, "'and we would fain see the effect she has on you when near.' "'Sir Richard Houghton,' he called out to the knight, "'who rode a few paces behind him, "'we pray you present Sir Richard Asherton and his daughter to us.' "'Had he dared to do so, Richard would have thrown himself at the king's feet, "'but all he could venture upon was to say, in a low, earnest tone, "'Do not prejudge Alison, sire. On my soul she is innocent.' "'The king prejudges nay, man,' replied James, in a tone of rebuke, "'and like the white prince of Israel, whom it is his wish to resemble, "'he sees with his ain een, and hears with his ain ears, before he forms conclusions.' "'That is all I can desire, sire,' replied Richard. "'Far be it from me to doubt your majesty's discrimination or love of justice.' "'Ye shall have proofs of both, man, before we are done,' said James. "'Ah, here comes our host, and the twee lasses wi' him. "'She with her lint-white locks is your sister, we guess, and thither is Alison. "'By our troth of weal, favoured lass, but Satan is aye delusive. "'Women resist his snares.' "'The party now came on, and were formally presented to the monarch by Sir Richard Houghton.' Sir Richard Asherton, a middle-aged gentleman with handsome features, though somewhat haughty in expression and stately deportment, was very graciously received, and James thought fit to pay a few compliments to Dorothy, covertly regarding Alison the while, and yet not neglecting Richard, being ready to intercept any signal that should pass between them. None, however, was attempted, for the young man felt he should only alarm and embarrass Alison by any attempt to caution her, and he therefore endeavoured to assume an unconcerned aspect and demeanour. Yeah, "'We heard the beauty of the Lancashire lasses highly recommended,' said the king, "'but faith it passes expectation. Two lovelier damsels than these we now beheld, both rare specimens of nature's handiwork.' Oh, "'Your Majesty is pleased to be complimentary,' rejoined Sir Richard Asherton. "'Nay, Sir Richard,' 
we an agean to flitterin though often behoomed oursel baith her bonny lasses we repeat and say this is alison nutter it would be ailsy in our rain scottish tongue to which your lancashire vernacular closely approximates sir richard a weel fair alison he added eyeing her narrowly ye hae lost your mother we understand the young girl was not discomposed by this question but answered in a firm melancholy tone your majesty i fear is too well acquainted with my unfortunate mother's history aweel <laughs> we dinna deny having heard somewhat her disadvantage replied the king but your ain looks gang far to contradict the reports fair maid place no faith in them then sire replied alison sadly eh what then ye admit your mother's guilt cried the king sharply i neither admit it nor deny it sire she replied it must be for your majesty to judge her eh, we'll answer the muttered james but i mustn't forget that the deil himself can court scripture to serve his purpose but ye hold in abhorrence the crime laid to your mother's charge eh he added aloud in utter abhorrence replied alison ah, good very good rejoined the king but entertaining this feeling how comes it ye screen so heinous an offender for justice nay natural feeling should be allowed to weigh in such a case nor should it sigh with me replied alison because i believe my poor mother's eternal welfare would be best consulted if she underwent temporal punishment neither is she herself anxious to avoid it oh, then why does she keep out of the way why does she no surrender herself cried the king because and alison stopped because what demanded james pardon me sire i must decline answering further questions on the subject replied alison whatever concerns myself or my mother alone i will state freely but i cannot compromise others aha then there are us concerned in it cried james without as much we will interrogate you further hereafter but a word mayor we trust you are devout and constant in your religious exercises damsel i will answer for that sire interposed sir richard assheton alison's whole time is spent in prayer for her unfortunate mother if there be a fault it is that she goes too far and injures her health by her zeal a good fault that sir richard observed the king approvingly it beseems me not to speak of myself sire said alison and i am loath to do so but i beseech your majesty to believe that if my life might be offered as an atonement for my mother i would freely yield it Ay, good faith she staggers me in my opinion muttered james and i man look into the matter more closely the lass is fair different from what i imagined her but the wiles of satan are not to be comprehended and he will put on the semblance of righteousness when seeking to beguile the righteous aweel damsel he added aloud you speak feelingly and properly and as a daughter should speak and we respect your feelings provided they can be such as ye represent them and now dispose yourselves for the chase i must pray your majesty to dismiss me said alison it is a sight in which at any time i take small pleasure and now it is especially distasteful to me with your permission i will proceed to houghton tower i also crave your majesty's leave to go with her said dorothy i will attend them 
interposed Richard. "'Now you mun stay wi' us, young sir,' cried the king. "'Your good father will gang wi' him. "'Sir John Finnet,' he added, calling to the master of the ceremonies and speaking in his ear, "'see that they be followed, and that a special watch be kept o'er Alison, "'and also o'er this youth. Do you mark me? "'In fact, o'er are the Asherton clan. "'And now,' he cried in a loud voice, "'let them blow the strake.' The chief huntsman, having placed the bugle to his lips, and blown a strike with two winds, a short consultation was held between him and James, who loved to display his knowledge as a woodsman. And while this was going forward, Nicholas and Sherborne having come up, the squire dismounted, and committing Robin to his brother-in-law, approached the monarch. Uh, "'If I may be so bold as to put in the word, my liege,' he said, "'I can show you where a heart of ten is assuredly harboured. I vowed him as I rode through the park this morning, and cannot therefore be mistaken. His head is high and well palmed, great beamed and in good proportion, well burred and well pearled. His stately and height, long and well fed. Did you mark the slot, sir? inquired James. I did, my liege, replied Nicholas, and a long slot it was. The toes great, with round, short, joint bones, large shin bones, and the dew claws close together. I'll uphold him for a great old heart as ever proffered, and one that shall show your majesty rare sport. And we'll take your word for the matter, sir, said James, for you're as good a woodman as any we have in our dominions. Bring us to him, then. Will it please your majesty to ride towards yon glade? said Nicholas. "'Before you reach it, the heart shall be roused.' James assenting to the arrangement, Nicholas sprang upon his steed, and calling to the chief huntsman, they galloped off together, accompanied by the bloodhound, the royal cavalcade following somewhat more slowly in the same direction. A fair sight it was to see that splendid company careering over the plain, their feathered caps and gay mantles glittering in the sun, which shone brightly upon them. The morning was lovely, giving promise that the day, when further advanced, would be intensely hot, but at present it was fresh and delightful, and the whole company, exhilarated by the exercise and by animated conversation, were in high spirits, and perhaps among the huge party which numbered nearly three hundred persons, one alone was prey to despair. But though Richard Asherton suffered thus internally, he bore his anguish with Spartan firmness, resolved, if possible, to let no trace of it be visible in his features or deportment, and he so far succeeded in conquering himself that the king, who kept a watchful eye upon him, remarked to Sir John Finnett as they rode along that a singular improvement had taken place in the young man's appearance. The cavalcade was rapidly approaching the glade at the lower end of the chase, when the lively notes of a horn were heard from the adjoining wood, followed by the deep baying of a bloodhound, "'Aha! They've roused him!' cried the king, joyfully placing his own bugle to his lips, and sounding an answer. Upon this the whole company halted in anxious expectation, the hounds baying loudly. The next moment a noble harp burst from the wood, whence he had been driven by the shouts of Nicholas and the chief huntsman, both of whom appeared immediately afterwards. "'By my faith, a great heart as ever was hunted!' exclaimed the king. "'There, boys! There! To em! To em!' Dashing after the flying hart, the hounds made the welkin ring with their cries. Many lovely damsels were there, but none thought of the cruelty of the sport. 
None sympathised with the noble animal they were running to death. The cries of the hounds, now loud and ringing, now deep and doling, accompanied by the whooping of the horsemen, formed a stirring concert, which found a response in many a gentle bosom. The whole cavalcade was spread widely about, for none were allowed to ride near the king. Over the plain they scoured, fleet as the wind, and the heart seemed to be making for a fell, forming part of the hill near the mansion. But ere he reached it, the relay stationed within a covert burst forth, and, turning him aside, he once more dashed fleetly across the broad expanse, as if about to return to his old lair. Now he was seen plunging into some bosky dell, and after being lost to view for a moment, bounding up the opposite bank, and stretching across a tract thickly covered with fern. Here he gained upon the hounds, who were lost in the green wilderness, and their cries were hushed for a brief space. But anon they burst forth anew, and the pack were soon again in full cry, and speeding over the open ground. At first the cavalcade had kept pretty well together, but on the return the case was very different, and many of the dames, being unable to keep up with the hounds, fell off and as a natural consequence many of the gallants lingered behind too, thus only the keenest huntsmen held on. Among these, and about fifty yards behind the king, were Richard and Nicholas. The squire was right when he predicted that the hart would show them good sport. Plunging into the wood, the hard-pressed beast knocked up another stag, and took possession of his lair, but was speedily roused again by Nicholas and the chief huntsman. Once more he is crossing the wide plain, with hounds and huntsmen after him. Once more he is turned by a new relay, but this time he shapes his course towards the woods skirting the Darwin. It is a piteous sight to see him now, his coat black and glistening with sweat, his mouth embossed with foam, his eyes dull, big tears coursing down his cheeks, and his noble head carried low. His end seems nigh, for the hounds, though weary too, redouble their energies, and the monarch cheers them on. Again the poor beast erects his head. If he can only reach yon coppice, he is safe. Despair nerves him, and with gigantic bounds he clears the intervening space, and disappears beneath the branches. Quickly as the hounds come after him, they are at fault. "'He has taken to the soil, sir,' cried Nicholas, coming up. "'To the river, to the river, you may see by the broken branches he's gone this way.' Forcing his way through the wood, James was soon on the banks of the Darwin, which here ran deep and slow. The heart was nowhere to be seen, nor was there any slot on the farther side to denote that he had gone forth. It was evident, therefore, that he had swam down the stream. At this moment a shout was heard a hundred yards lower down, proceeding from Nicholas, and riding in the direction of the sound, the king found the hart at bay on the further side of the stream, and nearly up to his haunches in the water. The king regarded him for a moment anxiously. The poor animal was now in his last extremity, but seemed determined to sell his life dearly. He stood on a bank projecting into the stream, round which the water flowed deeply, and could not be approached without difficulty and danger. He had already gored several hounds, whose bleeding bodies were swept down the current, and though the others bayed round him, they did not dare to approach him, and could not get behind him, as a high bank arose in his rear. "'Have I your Majesty's permission to dispatch him?' asked Nicholas. "'Aye, marry, if you can, sir,' 
but where the tines where the tines if thou be hurt with heart it brings thee to the pier as the old ballad hath it and the adage is true as we ourselves have seen nicholas however heeded not the caution but drawing his wood-knife and disencumbering himself of his cloak he plunged into the stream and with one or two strokes reached the bank the hart watched his approach as if divining his purpose with a look half menacing half reproachful and when he came near dashed his antlered head at him nimbly eluding the blow which if it had taken effect might have proved serious nicholas plunged his weapon into the poor brute's throat who instantly fell with a heavy splash into the water well stricken well stricken shouted james who had witnessed the performance from the opposite bank but how shall we get the carcass here that's easily done sire replied nicholas and taking hold of the horns he guided the body to a low bank a little below where the king stood as soon as it was dragged ashore by the prickers james put his bugle to his lips and blew a mort a prize was thrice sounded by nicholas and soon afterwards the whole company came flocking round the spot whooping the death-note meanwhile the hounds had gathered round the fallen heart and were allowed to wreak their fury on him by tearing his throat happily after sensibility was gone while nicholas again bearing his knife cut off the right forefoot and presented it to the king while this ceremony was performed the varlets of the kennel having cut down a great heap of green branches and strewn them on the ground laid the heart upon them on his back and then bore him to an open space in the wood where he was broken up by the king who prided himself upon his skill in all matters of woodcraft while this office was in course of execution a bowl of wine was poured out for the monarch which he took advertising as he did so to the common superstition that if a huntsman should break up a deer without drinking the venison would putrefy having drained the cup he caused it to be filled again and gave it to nicholas saying the liquor was needful to him after the drenching he had undergone james then proceeded with his task and just before he completed it he was reminded by a loud croak above him that a raven was at hand and accordingly taking a piece of gristle from the spoon of the brisket he cast it on the ground and the bird immediately pounced down upon it and carried it off in his huge beak after a brief interval the seek was again winded another heart was roused and after a short but swift chase pulled down by the hounds and dispatched with his own hand by james sir richard houghton then besought the king to follow him and led the way to a verdant hollow surrounded by trees in which shady and delicious retreat preparations had been made for a slight sylvan repast upon a mossy bank beneath a tree a cushion was placed for the king and before it on the sward was laid a cloth spread with many dainties including neat's tongues powdered well and jambons of the hog with sausages and savoury knacks to set men's minds agog cold capons and pigeon pies close at hand was a clear cold spring in which numerous flasks of wine were immersed a few embers too had been lighted on which carbonados of venison were prepared no great form or ceremony was observed at the entertainment sir john finnett and sir thomas houghton were in close attendance upon the monarch and ministered to his wants but several of the nobles and gentlemen stretched themselves on the sward and addressed themselves to the viands set before them by the pages 
None of the dames dismounted, and few could be prevailed upon to take any refreshment. Besides the flasks of wine, there were two barrels of ale in a small cart, drawn by a mule, both of which were broached. The whole scene was picturesque and pleasing, and well calculated to gratify one so fond of sylvan sports as the monarch for whom it was provided. In the midst of all this tranquillity and enjoyment, an incident occurred which interrupted it as completely as if a thunderstorm had suddenly come on. Just when the mirth was at the highest, and when the flowing cup was at many a lip, a tremendous bellowing, followed by the crashing of branches, was heard in the adjoining thicket. All started to their feet at the appalling sound, and the king himself turned pale. "'What in Helen's name can it be, Sir Richard?' he inquired. "'It must be a drove of wild cattle,' replied the baronet, trembling. "'Wild cattle!' ejaculated James, in great alarm. "'And say near us, downs we shall be trampled and gored to death by those bulls of basin. Sir Richard, ye are a forced traitor, thus to endanger the safety of your sovereign, and ye shall answer for it if harm comes o' it.' "'Ah, you are not able to account for it, sire,' stammered the frightened baronet. "'I gave special directions to the prickers to drive the beasts away.' "'Ah, ye shouldna keep such devils in your park, man!' cried the monarch. Eh, "'What's that?' Amidst all this consternation and confusion, the bellowing was redoubled, and the crashing of branches drew nearer and nearer, and Nicholas Asherton rushed forward with the king's horse, saying, "'Mount, sir, mount, and away!' But James was so much alarmed that his limbs refused to perform their office, and he was unable to put foot in the stirrup. Seeing his condition, Nicholas cried out, "'Pardon, my liege, but at a moment of peril like the present one must not stand on ceremony.' So saying, he took the king round the waist, and placed him on his steed. At this juncture a loud cry was heard, and a man in extremity of terror issued from the wood, and dashed towards the hollow. Close on his heels came the drove of wild cattle, and just as he gained the very verge of the descent, the foremost of the herd overtook him, and lowering his curled head, caught him on the points of his horns, and threw him forward, to such a distance that he alighted with a heavy crash, almost at the king's feet. Satisfied apparently with their vengeance, or alarmed by the numerous assemblage, the drove instantly turned tail, and were pursued into the depths of the forest by the prickers. Having recovered his composure, James bade some of the attendants raise the poor wretch who was lying groaning upon the ground, evidently so much injured as to be unable to move without assistance. His garb was that of a forester, and his bulk, for he was stoutly and squarely built, had contributed, no doubt, to the severity of the fall. When he was lifted from the ground, Nicholas instantly recognised in his blackened and distorted features those of Christopher Demdike. "'What?' he exclaimed, rushing towards him. "'Is it thou, villain?' The sufferer only replied by a look of intense malignity. "'Eh? What's d'ye ken who it is?' demanded James. "'By my soul, I fear the poor fellow has most of his bains broken.' "'No matter if they be,' replied Nicholas, "'and it may save the application of torture in case your Majesty desires to put any question to him. Chance has most strangely thrown into your hands one of the most heinous offenders in the kingdom.' who has long escaped justice, but who will at length meet the punishment of his crimes. 
"'The villain is Christopher Demdike, son of the foul hag who perished in the flames on the summit of Pendle Hill, and captain of a band of robbers.' "'What? Is the knave a warlock and a reaver?' demanded James, regarding Demdike with abhorrence mingled with alarm. "'Doth, sire,' replied Nicholas, "'and an assassin to boot. He's a diabolical villain.' "'Let him be taken to open door and kept in some strong and secure place till we have leisure to examine him,' said James, "'and see that he be visited by some skilful surgeon, for we wouldna hae him die and say rob the woody.' Demdike, who appeared to be in great agony, now forced himself to speak. "'I can make important disclosures to your majesty,' he said, in hoarse and broken tones, "'if you will hear them.' "'I am not the only offender who has escaped from justice,' he added, glancing vindictively at Nicholas. "'There is another, a notorious wit and murderess, who is still screened from justice. I can reveal her hiding-place.' "'Your Majesty will not give heed to such a villain's fabrications,' said Nicholas. "'Are they fabrications, sir?' rejoined James, somewhat sharply. "'We mun hear and judge.' "'The snake, though scotched, will still bite, it seems. "'We hae hang it a Highland Catherine without trial before this, "'and we may be tempted to tuck the law into our ain hands again. "'Bear a villain hence. "'See he be disposed as already directed, "'and take good care he is strictly guarded. "'And now gie us a crossbow, Sir Richard Houghton, "'and bid the prickers drive the deer for us, "'for we would try our skill as a marksman.' And while Demdike was placed on the litter of green boughs, which had recently sustained a nobler burden in the fallen heart, and in this sort was conveyed to Houghton Tower, James rode with his retinue towards a long glade, where, receiving a crossbow from the huntsman, he took up a favourable position behind a large oak, and several herds of deer being driven before him, he selected his quarries, and deliberately took aim at them contriving, in the course of an hour, to bring down four fat bucks, and to maim as many others, which were pulled down by the hounds, and with this slaughter he was content. Sir Richard Houghton then informed His Majesty that a huge boar, which, in sporting phrase, had left the sounder five years, had broken into the park the night before, and had been routing among the fern. The age and size of the animal were known by the print of the feet, the toes being round and thick, the edge of the hoof worn and blunt, the heel large, and the guards, or dew-claws, great and open, but from all of which appearances it was adjudged by the baronet to be a great old boar not to be refused. James at once agreed to hunt him, and the hounds being taken away, six couples of magnificent mastiffs, of the Lancashire breed, were brought forward, and the monarch, under the guidance of Sir Richard Houghton and the chief huntsman, repaired to an adjoining thicket in which the boar fed and couched. On arriving near his den, a boar-spear was given to the king, and the prickers, advancing into the wood, presently afterwards reared the enormous brute. Sallying forth, and freeming furiously, he was instantly assailed by the mastiffs, but notwithstanding the number of his assailants, he made light of them, shaking them from his bristly hide, crushing them beneath his horny feet, thrusting at them with his sharpened tusks, and committing terrible devastation among them. Repeated charges were made upon the savage animal by James, but it was next to impossible to get a blow at him for some time. 
and when at last the monarch made the attempt, he struck too low, and hit him on the snout, upon which the infuriated boar, finding himself wounded, sprang towards the horse, and ripped him open with his tusks. The noble charger instantly rolled over on his side, exposing the royal huntsman to the fury of his merciless assailant, whose tusks must have ploughed his flesh, if at this moment a young man had not ridden forward, and at the greatest personal risk approached the boar, and striking straight downwards, cleft the heart of the fierce brute with his spear. Meanwhile, the king, having been disengaged by the prickers from his wounded steed, which was instantly put out of its agony by the sword of the chief huntsman, looked for his deliverer, and discovering him to be Richard Asherton, was loud in his expressions of gratitude. "'Faith, ye mun claim a boon at our hands,' said James. "'It mun never be said that the king is ungrateful. What can we do for you, lad?' "'For myself, nothing, sir,' replied Richard. "'But for another meekle, is that why he would have us in fair?' cried the king, with a smile. "'Aweel, the lassie shall hae strict justice done her, but for your ain sake we mun inquire into the matter. Meantime, wear this,' he added, taking a magnificent sapphire ring from his finger, "'and if ye should ever need a aid, send it to us as a token.' Richard took the gift, and knelt to kiss the hand so graciously extended to him. By this time another horse had been provided for the monarch, and the enormous boar, with his feet upwards and tied together, was suspended upon a pole, and borne on the shoulders of four stout varlets as the grand trophy of the chase. When the royal company issued from the wood, a strike of nine was blown by the chief huntsman, and such of the cavalcade as still remained on the field being collected together, the party crossed the chase, and took the direction of Houghton Tower. End of chapter 8